think there's Talmud Torah, but there's also the role and the way in which Rabbi Salvechik viewed halacha. Because Rabbi, Rabbi Salvechik didn't view halacha in the narrow, with a narrow vision of, here are prescribed actions you should do. But when Rabbi Salvechik said the word, saw the word halacha, he meant the gamut of Jewish philosophy, of a Jewish worldview, a welkenchung, as he would say, to approach to life. And therefore, it's, I think, important to discuss how exactly the Rav looked at halacha, and then we'll get to the Talmud Torah. I'm going to do it a little cursory, and I'll tell you why, because really, this could be an entire series, the Rav's approach to halacha, as in just his most prominent work is called Halachic Man, followed by Halachic Mind. So again, there's so much there that there, it's so rich. Um, I want to just just get a little opening into that worldview, because I think it's important to to uh, frame his approach to Talmud Torah and learning Torah by first seeing his approach to, again, we say halacha, and how halacha is so much broader than just, am I going to wash my hands this way or that way? Am I going to not do this malacha on Shabbos or not do that action on Shabbos? But rather, when, when the Rav said halacha, he saw everything. So what we're going to do now is as follows. We're going to open up with, we'd say, a, a, a shir, in the sense of looking at a topic and how Rabbi Salavechik didn't just say, here is a halachic question, how do I answer it? But we'll see the way in which he looked at the world was through these lenses of the halachic lens. Now, I'm being very ambiguous, but that's intentional. Rabbi Salavechik wrote a, wrote a work called Halachic Mind. Out of all his works, this is probably his most complex. It is tedious, it is difficult. But at the end of it, he says the following. I have, I have the final paragraph after his entire work here on the source sheet, source number one. He says, to, the, to this end, there's only one single source from which a Jewish philosophical Weltanschung could emerge, the objective order, the halacha. Rabbi spends the majority of this book arguing that what is authentic Jewish philosophy? How do you know it's authentic? Because you sit down and you start pondering and you're Jewish and that makes it Jewish philosophy? No. Jewish philosophy has to be predicated on Jewish sources. What are those Jewish sources? And th- at this point, he critiques Maimonides. He critiques a lot of the Rishonim. Interestingly, Rav Hirsch, who lived a couple years before the Rav, also had a similar critique. And he says, the way in which you're going to know what the Torah wants from us and our, our entire orientation to life has to stem from the primary source that is the Torah and its manifestation within the Halacha. Meaning to say that through looking at the halacha, we can mine values and hierarchies and almost and worldviews to which we can live our lives. So for the Rav, it was much less, and I think he writes in one place, it's not about the pots and the pans in the kitchen, but he removes the pots and pans from Kashras, and from behind it, you, you see there's an entire world of Jewish thought. Now, he was heavily critiqued for this. Part of the critique was, if you look at Maimonides, he kind of viewed there was the Talmud, which is the dry legalism, if you will, and then there's the Agada, which is the more, the Midrash, it's the more, more philosophical stuff. For Resalvejic, it's unified. And I think it's also important to note, this is his grandson, Rabbi Meir Tversky, who's a Roshashiva uh, in YU, he points out, that he also, he, this is important as well, he distinguished between halachic symbolism and actual halachic philosophy. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean as follows. Said Rotorsky, sometimes we will give, let's say, a drasha. The example he gives, a very nice example, is we'll say, why is it we eat murr? Why do we eat murr after, d- during the night of Yitzhiya Smetrayim? Moreover, when do we eat the murr? Not during Magad when we're talking about how we were slaves, talking about how we were oppressed. We eat the murr when only after 
we start singing hollow, we sit down, we drink two cups of wine, and then we eat mar, like it seems a little incongruous, out of place. So, Raytorsky says, halachic symbolism says, you know what that must mean? The idea we're trying to convey is that even when things are going well, there's still a certain sense of bitterness. Or perhaps only when you have bitterness can you have the contrast to realize things are going well. A beautiful idea. But says Rabbi Tversky, that's not what Rabbi Soloveitchik means when he says a philosophy of halacha. That's a nice idea. It's inspiring. We should take it with us. We can nurture it. We can use it to get, get through a Pesach. Because halachic philosophy comes from delving into the minutia of halacha. Because he says, what is philosophy? Philosophy is trying try to ask these broad questions. For instance, he says, what is time? Is time a human construct? Is time something that's, that's actually imposed from without? Not, not within the humans. Well, he says, if you delve into the halacha, you start recognizing this idea of Kedusha Sazman. That it, whether we're, humans exist or don't, there's going to be Shabbos. That starts to tell us a little bit about answering the question of a halachic approach to time. That, and again, and he, 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 he really develops this, and I think we'll develop it more in future weeks. It's from within going through the halacha and, and really delving into it, you start seeing that there's these concepts and values and ideals that are behind it, more than just a nice idea, but actually a worldview. And he, and he says, he also, one more thing I want to point out, I meant to say this earlier, was where Salvatic says the same way a scientist approaches the world, what do the scientists do? A scientist tries to formulate axioms and, po- and postulates by looking at the raw data of the world and trying to find some sort of unifying idea, trying to explain, again, natural phenomenon, right? That's what a scientist does. So, so says the, for the philosopher, you also need to look at the philosophical ideas, find unifying principles behind that. Well, what are the, where are we looking for that? That's the halacha. That's, that's to what the earth, for instance, is to scientists. The halacha is to the halachasist. As again, trying to find unifying principles, trying to find a worldview. So what I want to do right now, well, let's finish halachic mind, and then we'll, I, what I want to do is I want to give you just a, a, uh, a, uh, a proof text of how the Rabbi Soloveitchik approached a, a halachic question, and from within that we see the, how he totally viewed the world different than you might, you might think. Are you ready for this? First story says as follows. This is again still in source number one. He says, uh, this is the second paragraph, it would help us discriminate between the living and the dead in Jewish philosophy. For instance, is for, for, for what, for instance, is of halachic nature in the guide and the kuzari, and what merely an echo of Plato, Platonic Aristotelian philosophy? It's a heavy, heavy critique. He says when you, you halacha becomes your primary source, so you can start figuring out well what is an alien source versus what is true Torah source. For instance, this is the critique. He goes, the Rambam wrote more nevuchim. He says the Rambam was clearly influenced by Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy. Well, says the Rishon how do we know if it's true, or how do we know he's just responding to Aristotelian philosophy? Maybe that's where it's stemming from. It's a heavy critique, no? He's accusing the Rambam of being influenced by Aristotle. The purpose of such an analysis is not to eliminate non-Jewish elements. Far from it, for the blend of Jewish and Greek thought has over time been truly magnificent. However, by tracing the Jewish trends and comparing them to non-Jewish, we shall enrich our outlook and knowledge. Modern Jewish philosophy must be nurtured on the historical religious consciousness and has been projected into a fixed objective screen. And this is the, this is the line he ends off with, a tantalizing line. Out of the sources of halacha, a new world view awaits formulation. Now, Rabbi Tversky said it's a very frustrating line because apparently the Rub was going to write a part two to this where he's going to show examples. But this is just how he ends the book. So he leaves it to us to kind of mind his works and mind, and again, he was a very prolific speaker and writer as well. A lot of it's been published after he passed away to see what he means. So what we're going to do now is the following. There is a prayer 
we say once a year at Mincha. Tishabov at Mincha, we say the following. God consoled the mourners of Zion, the mourners of Yerushalayim. The city that is mourning in ruins, despised and desolate, mourning because she's bereft of her children. She's bereft of her children, ruined of her dwelling, despised in the conscience of her former glory, desolate without inhabitants. She sits alone with her head covered like a barren woman who never gave birth, etc. Right? We say this. Well, the question emerged in 1967. First year, tish, right, it was around now, tomorrow. Tomorrow is the Yom Yerushalayim. That year, tish, that year Shavuos, Yerushalayim was packed with hundreds of thousands of people. First thing they can go to the Kotel. That year, Tishabov, there was a very disconcerting feeling. On the one hand, we're mourning the temple, we're mourning the destruction of the temple, we're reading prayers that our ancestors had said for thousands of years when they can only dream and think of Yerushalayim. You're sitting in Yerushalayim, and it's full of people, throngs of people. In fact, I saw today on the news that said Yerushalayim is going to become the first city in Israel that has over a million inhabitants. So you're going to tell me, look around Yerushalayim, and what's the most ubiquitous scene on the Yerushalayim skyline? More than that. What, what's more common? The cranes. Cranes. Building high-risers. It's cranes, the symbol of our growth. A million inhabitants, cranes being built, a, a light rail going through Yerushalayim, Torah being learned, and you're going to say to me, she's bereft of her children, ruined of her dwellings, despised in the contrast to her former glory? Really? That's what you're going to tell me? That's where that's what you're, you're going to tell me, and there was a lot of thought that went into this. Rav Goren, who was the chief rabbi, Rav Goren wrote a new Nachim. He went based off other texts. He said, "We can't say Nachim anymore. We can't say console Yerushalayim, which is sitting bereft of our children." And he went ahead and wrote a new one. Although histor- I, I'm not totally sure of the historical timeline, I believe that after the Yom Kippur War, he. Re- recanted a little bit and kind of recognized he may have jumped the gun a little bit. You know, there was a, the exuberance of 1967 was definitely tampered in 73. Others had dis- argued, disagreed. Chacham Avad Yosef wrote a truth in Yechav Adas, Chelek Aleph, I think Simon Mem Beis, if I remember correctly, or Nun Beis, where he says, look, we don't tamper with the, the prescription. We don't tamper with what our sages wrote. So even if you're feeling like we shouldn't say it, but ultimately this was written by holy people, we're not going to tamper with liturgy. Rabbi Salvechek, however, had a very different approach. Well, number one is, when it came to text and tradition, he, he was a conservative, as in with a small c. He didn't like playing around with text. But this is what he says. If you look around Yerushalayim, what do you see? Millions of people. Hundreds of thousands of people. You go to the Kotel, the second day of Yom Tif, there you have the Birchas Kohanim. Have you been there? Birchas Kohanim. It's an unbelievable scene. It's fantastic, right? What's the most... Con- a consoling sight you see when you walk out of Yad Vashem, intentional. You walk out of Yad Vashem and you see the mountains of Yerushalayim and you see houses being built. That's like supposed, it's supposed to be the symbolism of walking through, you're walking through the valley of death and then you see the rebirth of Yerushalayim. So how do you say Nachim? It says, this is what Rosalvechik said. In order to understand it, we can talk about symbolism, we can talk about nice ideas, but let's get halachic for a second. There's a Mishnah in Masech the Sukkah of all places. Masech the Sukkah talks about? Sukkahs. Thank you. Can't go wrong. That wasn't a trick question. It talks about Sukkahs. In the third parak, it's called Lulav HaGazel, talks about the laws of shaking the Lulav. And the Hadassah and the Rav and the Esrog. It says the, says the Mishnah as follows. 
on Barishona, in the world of Da'oraisa, in the world of what the Torah mandates, Hayalulav Notabamikta Shiva. They would shake the Lulav seven days in the temple. Uv Medina, and in the provinces, in the rest of the lands. Yomechad, just one day. The puzzle says, take for yourself on the first day. So, on the level of the Oraisa, according to the Torah, we only need to shake the Lulav day one of Yom Tif. Day two, no need. Day three, no need. The only place where the Torah says you shake all seven days is in the Mikdash, Hashem, in front of God. Other than that, one day. That was the halacha. So, you, so in, in the temple, you shake seven days. In, 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 in the rest of the country, you shake one day. Okay. Mishachar of Beis once the temple was destroyed, Hiskin of Yochanan and Zakai, of Yochanan and Zakai, the great rabbi, who came after the temple, who was the bridge, from bridging life with the temple to a dramatically altered life following the temple, one of the things he did, he did a, a number of things. One of the things he did, by the way, was he said, when he was, he would, they were, he was living in the besieged Yerushalayim, and he, fe- he feigned an illness, then feigned a death. They put him in a casket, they brought him outside, and Vespasian, the great Ro- Roman emperor, at that point he was the governor, meets him. And before he can attack him, basically, Rabbi Yochum said to him, uh, he greeted him as the ruler. So Vespasian says, I, I'm going to cut your head off. How can you, that's, you're being more to Malchus. You're being disrespectful to the real ruler. I'm just a general, and you're, you call me the ruler? Because you're the ruler, and at that minute, a... Uh, Someone came by and said, Vespasian, the, Roman, the emperor is dead and you've taken over. And the story goes on, and he, didn't, he did another act, and then Vespasian says to him, I want to grant you three requests. Like the genie. So what are the three requests? He, one was, He says, give me Yavna and its sages. As if, meaning the, the sages, the rabbinical court have been on the run, they ended up in Yavna, and he says, leave, you might destroy Yerushalayim, leave them be. Which is an amazing idea if you think about it. You... Your Yushalayim, the Semikdus is going to be destroyed. You can get any request in the world. Instead of saying, save the temple, he said, save the sages. And by doing so, he preserved the Mesorah. By doing so, he allowed the Mesorah, the tradition, to go on because the rabbis were alive. Which tells you many, many things, but included among them is the importance of the rabbis and also the role of the rabbis when it comes in conflict with the temple. I went to yeshiva called Karen Biyavna which was in Yavna. So, that was the motto. But the idea, again, is that ultimately what preserves our people? It's not a building. It's the Chachmel. It's the Sages. The Mesorah. It's, Torah, it's Talmud Torah. It's learning Torah, which we'll see in a minute. Fine. Among the different... So, Rav Yochanan Zaki, again, as we mentioned, he's living in this period where he has to bridge practice from the Temple to a radically new reality post-Temple. For instance, when the Temple's around, as we've discussed previously, everyone prayed. But you also brought sacrifices. You, have, you live in a world devoid of sacrifices, so what's your relationship and connection to God? There had to be a whole new revolution in terms of prayer and what the role of prayer, the centrality that prayer is going to play in your life when you no longer have sacrifices. One of the things Rabbi Yochanan does, it says, is his skin of Yochanan Zaki gets up and says, although when the temple's around and you lived in Yavna, you lived in Yericho. You lived in Tel Aviv. You lived in Bnei Brak. You lived in Netanya. You only shook the lulav the first day. But if you were in the temple, you shook it seven days. Lulav notu shiva. From now on, we're going to shake the lulav throughout the diaspora. Throughout Israel, all seven days. Zeicher lemikdash. In commemoration to the mikdash. 
why that is, I'm not going to get, I, want, I don't want to get into the details for that. But basically he said the reason we shake lulav nowadays is in commemoration of the mikdash. So we don't forget the mikdash. We don't forget this rule. Or maybe there's an element of mourning here that it reminds us we shouldn't be doing this. Oh, because things aren't ideal. Whatever the reason is, if Yochid Menzaka said, although ideally you shake one day in Medina, what's Medina? Country. And basically Mikdash one, seven, seven days. Now we do all seven. Problem says Rashi is as follows. How do you define Medina? I'll tell you why. Think about it as concentric circles. Temples over here, Temple Mount, Yerushalayim, Israel, the world. Okay. Medina implies the country, so I can assume that's Israel, and everywhere emanating outwards is Medina, is, country, is outside of Israel, provinces. What about Yerushalayim? Is Yerushalayim part of the temple, or is it part of the Medina? The rest of the country. Fair question. It's a, it's, it's a halacha question. It's an, I don't I don't know if it's a log, I don't know if it's a logical question necessarily. It's, I think it's just it's a clarifying question. Clarify the role of Yerushalayim, as Ray Salvation points out, because Yerushalayim is almost it's a, it's a funny place where, for instance, certain sacrifices like the Kar Pesach, you couldn't eat outside Yerushalayim. You can eat it, or you're supposed to eat in Yerushalayim, implying it has some sort of sanctity from temple. On the other hand, it's not the temple. So look what Rashi says. Medina, the, the outskirts, the Medina, says Rashi says in the next source, When he says Medina, he means Yerushalayim. And, meaning Yerushalayim and emanating anywhere outwards. That is to say, the Torah says, Take for yourself a lula over the first day. That's everywhere. Then it says, Shivas Yom, seven days, you take a lefnei Hashem in the temple. That means the temple. Yerushalayim, that's not the temple. That's not Temple Mount. That's considered Medina. And therefore, if you are in Yerushalayim on day three of Yom Tif, before the Takana, no need to shake the Luluf. You're not supposed to shake the Luluf. Okay. Then, we have as follows. Again, we're trying to answer a question of, should we say Nachim nowadays? Says the Rambam, Rambam, as we know, Maimonides, he was, the Rambam was Rabbi Salvechik's best friend. Hands down. Best friend. He describes, and we'll see it in a minute, and as being literally his best friend. It says the Rambam wrote a, his magnum opus is called the, is called the uh, Yad Chazaka. It's a 14 volume work of Halacha. But he also wrote a running commentary on the Mishnayos, explaining the Mishnayos. And he says, Shiva. The Mishnah says, initially, we shook the Lula of seven days in the, in the Mikdash, one day in the Medina. Medina who called. Kohayaros says the Ram, what's Medina? All of the cities. Shabbat Yisrael in Israel, and for that matter and beyond. Milvad, with the exception of Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. So we have a, we have a, we have a machlokas, a, a debate between Rambam and Rashi. Rashi says Yerushalayim is like the rest of the country. And the Rambam says, no, Yerushalayim in and of itself is like Temple Mount. Yeah. Well, specifically old city. Old city within the walls. Yeah, well, I don't want to get into that. There's a more discussion. Well, let's put it at the old, the old city of Jerusalem. Ir David is probably what it is. Okay. So if I asked you, what do we have here? It sounds like a clarifying question. We just need a definition here. We need a definition. What's Yerushalayim? Rashi says this. Ram says this. Says Ray Salavechik. It's actually very, it's more than that. And this is where we'll see how he had this halachic lenses. And he also, by the way, is exposed to, to the way he thought about things. He says as follows. What gives Jerusalem special sanctity? 
What gives a special sanctity? He says Temple Mount. Temple Mount. That we look at it as a continuation of Temple Mount. As it derives its sanctity from Temple Mount. That's what gives it sanctity. Not the fact that it's rebuilt. Not the fact that people live there. Yerushalayim, the rest of the earth. So what gives Israel sanctity? So the, the, the Rambam tells us, after we conquer it, the fact that we, we develop the land. We live there. In, in a sense, what the Rambam is telling us is, the fact that we are living and developing Israel, that imbues it with a sense of a level of sanctity that which will never go away. It gives it Kedusha. What gives Yerushalayim sanctity above the rest of Israel? Not that we're living there. Not that we have on every single, you look at the skyline, you see a thousand sky, skyscrapers, uh, a thousand uh, major cranes. Not the fact that there are a million Jews there. What gives Yerushalayim sanctity is the fact that Temple Mountain is located there and emanating out of Temple Mountain, concentric circles, if you will, is multiple varying levels of sanctity. And therefore, on Temple Mount, you bring sacrifices, we also then say the next level over, you can even eat the sacrifices. And Rabbi Salvechik goes through a number of different instances where we see, for instance, the shofar we don't blow on Shabbos, right? The shofar we don't blow on Shabbos. In Yerushalayim, they would blow on it on Shabbos, the same way they blew in the temple on Shabbos. Why is that? Again, for the Rabbi Salvechik, Yerushalayim derives its sanctity from Temple Mount. Now let's put this all together. The question that everyone was asking in 1967 was, how can you say you? Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, is sitting desolate and empty, as we say in the prayer of Nachim, like a, a woman without her children, when Yerushalayim is hustling and bustling. There's a light rail that runs through Yerushalayim. There's, there's a million people living there. It's just, you can't say, Nachim, God, comfort Jerusalem. Says, and so says the Salvechik, yeah, if you look at it from the perspective of just looking around, it looks hustling and bustling. But what are we consoling Yerushalayim about? It's halachic status. And halachically, without a temple, is devoid of its extra level of sanctity. And therefore, yes, maybe it looks like it has people there, but halachically, it doesn't have the same sanctity. It's like a maiden without her children. What Salvechi did, what I'm trying to highlight is, he said, you have to go to the halacha. And from within the halacha, again, this is not halacha necessarily about tying this shoe before that shoe, not doing this malacha on Shabbos or that action on Shabbos. What he's doing is saying, from within the, learning the sugya, looking, probing the depths of why the Ramam says this and Rashi said, said that, we now have a whole new way of looking at Yerushalayim. More than that, for the Rav, and this I think is the most important part, the Rav said, don't look at the world through the lens of our eyes. Put on what I'd say halachic glasses. That when Rabbi Salichik, when he would look, he once said, when halachic man sees a stream, right away his mind jumps, well, is this stream going to qualify as a mikvah? When he said, he said, when I saw this, he said one time he was a little boy, he was with his grandfather, and they walked outside, it must have been some break between Mincha and Ni'ilah. I guess the rabbi didn't speak. And the sun was going down, and Rav Chaim Salvechik turned to little Yosher Bear. And he said to him, you think that's a regular sunset? Because the sun's going down like it does all, all 365 other days of the year? No, that's a sunset of atonement. Fundamentally different. As that sun goes down, it's going to bring atonement to the Jewish people. Where are these halachic lenses? See the, uh, perceive the world through the halacha, and then you'll start seeing a whole new reality. As the as Rav Salvechik said it, then from within that, within that, out of the source of Allah, a new worldview awaits formulation. It's like a powerful idea. Any thoughts, questions, comments before we move on? Is there any sort of, kind of a little off topic, is there any sort of residual kedusha from having the. Let's not, let's not, there, there, there probably is, but that's the way I feel. So, what next week we're not going to meet because it's Arab Shavuos, but uh, maybe after that we'll go through this idea and how it plays out other places. I think it's very interesting to see how the Rub does it.
just in and of itself, beyond just from the methodological point, I think just to see the various places he does this, is I think fascinating. Um, one other thing I want to make of this before we move on to the part two of this is, and it's something we touched upon I think two weeks ago, that sometimes there are different approaches to, I'd say, Musser, um, ethics, uh, hashkafa, Jewish philosophy, within, I'd say, the, within Judaism. Some people say, look, I have the book of the Shulchan Aruch, that's one book, and I have the book of Musser, another book. And both are very important. Hashkafa, philosophy is very important, and halacha is very important, but the overlap is less important to me. I don't really see the overlap, because at the end of the day, why am I eating matzah on Pesach? Because Torah says eat matzah. Ah, you're going to start telling me philosophical reasons? Great, I'll save that for the, the middle of Magid, I need to say Devar Torah. That's one approach. In a way, I think many people live their life that way. They, keep, they do halacha one way, there's in their ideals other ways. For the Rav, it was much more than that. For the Rav, so fundamental to halacha was the philosophy that emerges from it. That we're not going to bifurcate. We're not going to say, there's the philosophy of it, and there's the halacha of it. Not to say that if you don't agree with the philosophy, you're not going to do halacha. Ultimately, we eat matzah because God said so. But it's God said to do it so that it inculcates within us certain sensitivities, or certain ideas, or certain worldviews, or certain values. And I think it's so important that it's often lost in today's world. People think, oh, it's just the halacha, but like, let's look for values elsewhere. Or Salvage says, you want to know what the Torah thinks about any, any of the host of issues in life? Look at the halacha, the way, and it's doing that. And it works both ways. Through, do, through keeping the halacha, you, it also reinforces these values within you. And then through learning these values, it also helps you have a certain passion and motivation for the halacha as well. And in fact, I, what I would say is, maybe the very practical halacha, that we, the way we live our life, that's a manifestation of the philosophy that we believe in. Right? It's also something that we try to figure out, I believe in this, that's a manifestation. And it's a way of bringing all that to life and bring it to reality. That through, you know, I'm just going to throw an example out here, though it might not be a good example. Through lighting Shabbos candles, I bring to life a reality of the ability to mikadeh, sanctify time. So not just I'm lighting, but I'm bringing a reality to life. I'm bringing values to life, etc. So I think that's just an important note to make, and that will move on to part two. I'll come to you after. Part two is, again, I said because it's Eric Shavuos, to discuss Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach. You had a question on this? Your question was... was so I don't, I don't want to get sidetracked. Rabbi Salvechik, and that's Talmud Torah. Shavuos is upon us, and therefore it's important to discuss Rabbi approach to Talmud Torah. The core value that animated Rabbi Yosef Dov Salvechik's life was Talmud Torah. He may have been a man who had a PhD from the University of Berlin, who when you open up his book, Halachic Man, do we have it here? I should have brought it. Within the first page, you encounter more philosophers and more philosophy than probably most of us have ever, like, even seen the book covers in our life. I mean, he literally, I, I, I once tallied it. He's like 30-something people. He's quoting. Everyone from Kant to uh, everyone. He's quoting everyone. He, was, he spoke, I think, I, his, I heard his son say he spoke like seven languages, including re, he read Greek and he read Latin. And you read his works that he wrote in English, and we need a dictionary. This is like his fifth language. Be even and despite all that, the thing that animated his life was Talmud Torah, the pure engagement with learning Torah. This is what this is what it was. He spent the first twenty years of his life, for instance, were solely within the what he would say the Arba Amusha Halacha, the four cubits of Halacha. He he grew up in a house. His grandfather is probably the most greatest representation of his generation of someone who's utterly opposed to secular education. He thought it had zero value. 
his grandfather. Zero value. And yes, he may have switched at some point why that is, you know, kind of his mother's influence. And I'll tell you, he even opens up his uh, first written work, The Lonely Man of Faith. The quote he opens up with, you know how sometimes authors will put a quote there and nothing to do with the book? The quote is, the, 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 um, I believe it's from Rashi that says that when, before Yosef sinned, or what prevented him from sinning was the demus yuk no shall of it. He saw his father's image hovering in the window pane. Is it to say, like, I recognize I am breaking it away with my family tradition, and, like, it, it bothers me. It's like, it's a, like, I understand, I'm bothered by it. It's there, it's there. But ultimately, despite all that, despite the fact he didn't get the PhD, and he was totally, totally well-versed and comfortable in the world of the academia, in a way that all of us who they probably put, put us all to shame, who, it, 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 reality, like, that's what it is. But his core value was Talmud Torah. He never moved away from it. And a Talmud Torah that was as traditional as it could be. It wasn't modern. It wasn't using new methods. I, I heard recently there was, there was uh, a Rosh Hashiva in Lakewood. Someone sent a recording out where they asked, like, why did some people in Lakewood not learn Ray Salvechik? And he responded, because he used more academic Talmud study. The next day he goes, well, someone called him and said it's not true. It wasn't true. You know, it, it's, most, it's, we would say, classical, brisker methodology. Real and, and to, the, to the extent, and, and in a beautiful, brilliant way. He, was, he had a creative mind when he was, no, he was known. But I think that was part of the tragedy. People talk about it, and you can read it. When he went to Berlin, as in to, pursue, to Western Europe to pursue, pursue his academia, the Torah world was in shock because he was the protege. He was, or Chaim Salvechik was the, the leading Talmudicist of his generation. This was his grandson. And it's more than just his grandson. Everyone knew he was an absolute brilliant genius. And like, we lost him. We lost him. And I, 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 I don't, Rabbi J.J. Schachter quotes this, actually. He said he met someone who wrote a diary who was there in Berlin the week Rabbi Salvechik arrived. He said, and everyone was standing there in Shoal and going, look who's here, look who's here, look at Mech. Rabbi Salvechik is a young man who's 20-something years old, sitting by himself in the back of the Shoal, and everyone knew that was Rav Chaim Salvechik's grandson. And he, descri- he describes who he was. He said he, he has a very cute story in there, not really relevant for this, but whatever of um, someone invited, this, this person's mother or wife invited Rabbi Salvechik for Pesach. So Rabbi Salvechik said in a very nice way, I'd love to come, but I can only come if I, su- if I see how you kosher your kitchen. Because he was well aware that the standards of halacha were not the same from where he came from. And Rabbi Salvechik shows up, and she starts doing things, and he said to her, like, you know, why do you do it this way? Or he asked some sort of question. She goes, this is what I learned from my mother. And he didn't say anything, and he left. So she's wondering, did I offend him? Clearly, if I, didn't, I never learned, studied it in the Shulchan Aruch, he must think it's not kosher. And then, a few hours later, there's a knock on the door, and someone delivered flowers from him. So she realized, he, I mean, as if he's coming. And like that, I, that was also the idea of like the Mesorah, of tradition, meant a lot to him, even though, you know, it meant a lot to him. But either way, Surabhai Salvechik was someone, he spent four decades, the bulk of his career, teaching Talmud in Yeshiva University. Teaching, teaching in, actually the, one of the first things he did when he got to Boston, we started a yeshiva called Yeshiva's Heichel Rav Chaim, Chaim Salavechik. It, was a, it lasted for one year. It was supposed to be a post-grad, I guess, base measures for the, for the elite. It only lasted one year because then his father passed away and they called him to New York to teach it and take, his father's position, take over his father's position. It happens to be that one year, some of the greatest personalities of last generation ended up there. One of them was Rav Nata Greenblatt, who, was, who was, ended up being a rabbi in, in Memphis. He passed away about a year ago. He was an absolute brilliant Talmud Chacham, brilliant person who just used to wear like a tweed gray suit and a little gray hat and a little goatee. People didn't realize how great he was to the extent that 
there were a, a bunch of guys from Lakewood. These were guys who learned in all like the really yeshivish Haredi places. And they're on vacation in the Smoky Mountains. And the Chabad rabbi said, there's a get that's being given tomorrow. Do you want to come see it? So they said, sure. So they show up and they see there's a guy with a little tweed suit and a gray hat and a briefcase and a goatee. And the guy sees, oh, you guys are from yeshiva? Let me, let me tell you some Torah. He said he gave them this brilliant, this brilliant, brilliant shear to the extent that the guy's are like, who is this? And they said to him, would, would you be interested? And he was in his 80s then. Would you be interested in starting a yeshiva? And he said, yes. And so for like two or three years, these guys all went to Memphis and he was, he was Rosh Hashiva for them. Now he had, at one point, apparently he gave over some novelty he had in Torah learning. He started to cry. He goes, I haven't, I've never been able to say this over to anyone because I, I didn't have that position as Rosh Hashiva. But this is who he, he was. He was, he was, he learned there. There was a Rav Michal Feinstein who went to become the son-in-law of the Brisker Rav. So just Rabbi Salvechik's cousin. So he's uh, also learned there. And Rav Dr. Greenblatt describes there was no time, there was no set time for shakras. <laughs> it wasn't like 7.30 shakras every day, but rather he said what we would do is we would learn all night until we felt we just dropped, fall, dropped just fell asleep. And then when we all woke up, we'd dive in chakras. He said it was a year of his life. It was total, he said it was crazy. Totally ensconced within the world of Torah. I mean, a lot of times when people in yeshiva, I, can, I had a pretty crazy schedule when I was learning in KBY. But like, this is beyond that. 20 hours a day of learning. That was Marcel Vechik. That was his life. This, the, my grandfather told me one time in Shir, so Marcel Vechik explained to Tosfos, and Ervaren Lichtenstein, who was Marcel Vechik's son-in-law, who also was a tremendous Talmud Chacham, a tremendous Talmud Chacham, I can't underestimate that, but he had a PhD from Harvard. He, as traditional as he was, he was more okay blending both worlds. So my grandfather said, he said to him, oh, that reminds me of an idea from Spencer's Fairy Queen. To which point the Rav looked at Ravarin and goes, we're not, something along the lines of, we're not mixing that into the Gemara. As in, I appreciate it, but that, that, that's, its place is not here. For Ravarin, it's very different. When we open up Ravarin's essays, he's quoting, he'll quote the Rambam and he'll quote, in, he'll quote uh, Henry Moore. Or that's where his PhD was in. He'll quote, um, whoever else, now it's blanking him. He'll quote all, the, he'll quote all these people. But for Rabbi Salvechik, that's not, that, that, that wasn't who he was. Rav, uh, Ravarin, Ravarin actually wrote, wrote, a, um, wrote an essay about his father-in-law and he said his father-in-law was like his namesake, Yosef. And that, he had many, many different colors. He, was in, he, he loved many different things. However, ultimately, he was all a one unified tapestry, one coat. And it unified around, it coalesced around the Torah. That was essential. That was who he was. And therefore, what I want to do, is I, can, I just try to say, I cannot overstate his connection to, to Talmud Torah. So what I'm going to do is we did last week, and I want to read from Rabbi Salvechik. This is collected from various different essays and speeches he's, he's, he's said over the years. Read about what he felt when he was learning Torah. You'll see why it was so meaningful and important to him. Number one, in 1975, I believe this was to address the RCA convention, the Biblical Council of America convention. He said as follows, I have been a Rosh Hashiva. This is found on page. If you want the exact page number, let's um, turn to page number two, line number, it's like seven. I, I have been a Rosh Hashiva, a teacher of Talmud all of my life at least the major part of my adult life. I have taught many, many people. In fact, he ordained over 2,000 rabbis. I don't know how many, but many people. And when I do teach, time comes, time comes to a stop for me. I don't look at the timepiece, the clock or my wristwatch. I just teach. It is, a very, it is very simple. I don't know. For me, teaching has a tremendous and a very strange impact upon me. Right? Now, when you think of Torah... You think of a very intellectual, intellectually rigorous experience, but it's intellectual, right? 
tell me if you see any intellect in a way, and I mean obviously intellect, but if you see this intellectual, this is a, this is a very emotional des- description of Talmud Torah. I simply feel when I do teach Torah, I feel the breath of eternity on my face. Even now when I am old, of course, certainly not young, teaching Torah, shiurim, teaching Torah relieves me of the fear of death and all the blues, depressive moments which elderly people go through. When I do teach, I feel rejuvenated as if I were 25 or 30 years old. If not for the study and teaching of Torah, I would have lost my sanity in the year of my triple Avelis, right? We discussed this in the past, how he lost three people in one year. His father, his mother, his brother, and his wife. I was on the verge of mental collapse and breakdown. Also, just see how autobiographical he is. So, you know, he's very vulnerable about that. I did not. I emerged victorious, and it is due to one thing only. I would say my mad dedication to Torah. I'm not trying to brag or boast. I'm telling you the truth. I was hit that year and the following years, I felt somehow because of teaching Torah, I was not alone. That I had somebody, that somebody was invisible, but I felt his presence to confine. There was somebody on whose shoulder I could cry, and there was somebody from whom I could almost, I almost demand words of solace and comfort. How, how old was he? In 75, he was born in 1903. So he's 72 years old. He's not a young man. If you turn to the next page, there's a portion in Hebrew I want to read from, um, and I think it, it brings a lot of this together. This, is, this comes from Rabbi Menachem Ganek, who I saw just the other night. He was the, he's the CEO of the Orthodox Union, their Kashras. He is one of Rabbi Salvechik's most, uh, I'd say prime, if you think his prime students, Rabbi Ganek is one of them. So he wrote a book based off his, the lectures he heard from Rabbi Salvechik. And in, in the introduction, he talks about this idea that Talmud Torah, learning Torah, is more than just an intellectual pursuit. But in fact, he says, the same way we call tefillah, davening, avodah believe the worship of the heart, Talmud Torah itself is a worship of the heart. That this, why? He says, because what's tefillah about? Tefillah is about encountering the Almighty. What's Talmud Torah about? It's also about encountering the Almighty. He says it becomes, what he, what he, says, he, says, what he says is it becomes, as we say in Parshish Hazino, a shira, a song. Talmud Torah is a song, it, it, again, remove the intellectual part of it, which is very much a part of it. But he says, a way of encountering the Almighty, he says, write to Ray Salvechik, write to Reganek. After going through this long essay in the introduction, describing how Torah is like davening, and Torah is a shira, and Torah is another way of encountering the Almighty. He says, Dugma chaya lil shakulo shira I have an example, a living example, that I witnessed of how someone could take Torah, this intellectual pursuit of going through is Yerushalayim part of the Mikdash, is Yerushalayim part of Israel? Is, does that mean we, we shake the lulav? Do we not shake the love? Right? Intellectual questions. And I saw how they turned it into a song. I saw they turned it into a way of encountering the Almighty. Chazino Eitzel Rabbeinu HaGrid Salavichik. I was next to the grid. The grid is, again, oftentimes we'll take a name, make it acronyms, we'll call them that. For instance, Rashi. Rashi, as we know. What's Rashi? Rashi Yitzlaki. Rambam, Moshe, Maimon. Right. The grid is Hagon Rav Yosef Dov. So they call him the grid. I was next to the grid Salvechik Rav Yosef Dov Salvechik. Kasher Shiras Toroso. He literally felt as if he was standing in front of the king when he was learning. And when Rav Salvechik was learning, it wasn't just him learning alone in a room, but he was learning. It was literally as if the Shechina, God's presence, was resting next to him. I'll tell you what I remember, says Rabbi Ganek. Every year on the third day of Shvat, 
It was the yard site of Rabbi Salvechik's father, of Moshe Salvechik, and he'd give a four-hour lecture in Lamport Auditorium. First two hours are generally halachic. When I say halach again for the Rav, it really means much more than halach. It's, it's the Iyun, it's going into the reasons behind the Gemara and the, the precepts, etc. And the second half was more hashkafa philosophy. I think it started out in Yiddish. At a certain point, the Rabbi uh, switched over to English. The story goes, I mean, the true story was, there was a person in Shir who one day was there, next day wasn't there, and Salvechik said, where are you? And he said to him, basically, I don't understand Yiddish. I'm an, I'm, I'm an American boy. And Salvechik basically, basically said, like, at this point, the American boys don't understand Yiddish, and he, he switched over to English. So the Yiddish would definitely initially give it in Yiddish. I assume the Yiddish as well, Went to English. They're all been written up. There's uh, two volumes called Shi'urim Zeich Avi Mori, Shi'urim given in memory of my fa- my father, my teacher, and as well as I think a lot of what Rabbi Ganak gives over in his book is also you'll see a lot of parallels. So he was also there. I mean, he took his notes and turned it into Shi'urim as well. Okay. So what what's unique about this Yartzeit Shi'ur? This is the year of, as we said, the triple Avelis, the year where Salvechik, I've said a minute ago, he was crushing, he was under, he was depressed. He was sitting there feeling this extreme, extreme depression. And just we'll point out, as we said also, and that was 60, 67. In 60, in 65, I believe, he had cancer. Uh, so he was, again, it wasn't easy. That was the year his, his, his mother, his brother, and his wife passed away. He was under tremendous agony, tremendous pain, tremendous depression. But I saw this awesome thing. It says Rabbi Ganak, he was young then. I saw this awesome thing. When he was being burdened by this tremendous pain. One break after another, one, one, just again, just this pain after another. So imagine this, he's a man here, he gets up, he's 67, so he's 65 years old. He kind of gets up there, he looks broken, he looks down, dejected. He, he, he shuffles up there. He opens his mouth to begin the shear, whatever the shear was that year. Immediately, right away, he goes, I, we witnessed this transformation in front of us from being a broken man to being filled with the Torah. That the Torah like, woke him up. It took him away from this pain. It took him away from the agony. And the light of the Shechina, of God's presence, which envelops the Torah, Enlightened him, enlightened his soul. It woke him up, it took him out of the misery of that year. And the way he gave over the Torah that year, it was full of joy, it was full of light, as if the Torah was being given at Har Sinai with all the, with all the thunder, the lightning. That to learn the Torah, it woke him up. He felt alive again. As Dovon Melch says, what did Dovon Melch famously say? Had I not had the Torah as my delight, I would have been lost to my pain. Right? That what Amel says, in, it says this in Tehillim. See, we saw how Rosalvichuk would have been lost to his pain. But Lulei Saras Shashua, he had the Torah as his delight. But then listen to what he says, and this is so powerful. And he goes, and then Rosalvichuk said the following. And, oh, this is an exact quote. You can imagine this. I'm going to say it in Yiddish. I don't speak Yiddish that well, but it's written here in Yiddish, and I'll translate. You can imagine Rosalvichuk is sitting there, and he's giving the shear, and he starts 
go shuckling back and forth, maybe singing a little. Ay, 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 ay. And he looks up at us and he says the following. He says, I feel like if someone behind me, right? This is, we saw with Salvation, the same thing in 75. Someone's behind me. And he's whispering in my ear. Rav Yashiber, Rav Yashiber, I said Rabbi Salavechik, Vos Zoktu Vyugandar Kushyo. Rav Yashiber, what do you think about this question? Sitting there, he says he feels as if the presence of the divine is whispering in his ear. What do you have to say about this, Rav Yashiber? What's your contribution going to be? What's your chiddush going to be? Here's a tremendous issue what we found with the Rambam and Rashi and Lulav. What do you think, Rabbi Salavechik? You're not engaging in this yourself sitting in a room with an open Gemara. You're sitting engaging with the Holy One. You're engaging with the Torah. What's your contribution going to be to the Messiah to the tradition? This is a clear, this is a, seared in my mind, this image of how the Torah can transform one. How more than that, I'll add, how you or each one of us can also play a part in the Messorah itself, in the tradition, that we have what to offer, that we have a Chiddush we can say, that we have, the Torah is there, and by learning it and tapping into it, we can play a part, not just in the transmitting it to the next generation, but also creating a novelty, playing a role in it, trying to answer a question for, for, a question for whatever may come up there. I'll tell you, the greatest pleasures I've had have been when I had a Chiddush in Torah. You could ask Emma, I bother her a lot. Like, I had a Chiddush. She goes, whatever. But like, it's, and I'll tell you, I had a, I had a Rebbe, Rav David Kavi, the Yartzeh's next week. He was an older man when I knew him, and he used to get up to give a shear like this, literally like this. And he'd get up there, he was older, he spoke very low, he opened up this thing and he'd talk. And I usually fell asleep, he'd talk like this. And I have one image, the first time I heard him speak, I fell asleep, I woke up a half hour later. And he's screaming, waving his glasses, Screaming, it just like woke him up. It brought him to life because like this was his life, and this the encounter with the learning was able to wake him up to bring a certain simcha to his life. I just remember that that's the image I have, very similar to Rabbi Ganak. But we're going to go on, and I again. He woke you up too. Well, he woke me up. He insists myself, but it's also more than that. It's a way of encountering not just the Torah, but also the tradition. He says, when if you turn to the next page. When I sit down to learn, the giants of the tradition are with me. Our relationship is personal. And he often talked about this, how it wasn't just, these are names. The Rambam sits to my right. Rabbeinu Tam to my left. Rashi sits at the head and explains. The Rambam decides the halacha and the rivet objects. All of them are with me in the small room sitting around the table. They look at me with fondness. Learning Torah is not just a didactic, formal, technical experience whose purpose is creation and exchange of ideas. This is, I think, the key line. It's not just didactic. It's not just formal. It's not just exchange of ideas. Learning Torah is the intense experience of uniting many generations together. The joining of his spirit to spirit and the connection of soul to soul. That as I, I, I said, his best friend was the Rambam. He really felt it. That it's, I'm not just engaging in this, this, this technical experience, but I'm actually engaging with the Messiah. I'm engaging with them. And I think, again, there's so much more, and maybe we'll come back to this. But what I'm highlighting for the Rabbi Salvation, Talmud Torah was a religious experience. Not just a religious accent. It was an experience in and of itself. But I want to show you maybe where it all comes from. This actually is a nice way to end. Mother's Day was this past week, so it ties it all together. Are you ready for this? This is, this is awesome. When I saw this the first time, I was, I'm like, I was waiting for years to use this in a shir. Rav Savitchik wrote a work, a work that's called Bikash to Misham, and there you shall seek. Halachic man talks about the man of halacha, 
what the role of halacha plays. Halacha mind talks more about the philosophy. Vikashtam Misham is basically almost the emotional experience of feeling God's presence. This is what he writes. Let's take 142 it. He's describing a scene from his childhood. He says as follows. Imagine this is in the, I don't remember what town he was from. I'm just blanking on it right now. He was from Koslovich. Koslovich, town, town in Russia. And his father, again, we pointed out his father was the son of, 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 of Chaim Salvatrix. So this actually takes place, he says, in the, in the home of his grandfather, Elijah Feinstein, of Elijah Pushner, who's his mother's grandfather. His mother's father, excuse me. And he says as follows. I remember myself as a, boor, as a child, a lonely, forlorn boy. Often you find people who are brilliant. You know, they don't have peers. I was afraid of the world. It seemed cold and alien. I felt as everyone was mocking me. But I had one friend. And he was, please don't laugh at me, Maimonides, the Rambam. How did I become friends with the Rambam? How did we meet? We simply met. And listen to this. The Rambam was a regular guest at our house. There were days when my father, my mentor, was living in the home of my, great -gran of my grandfather, the great and pious of Elijah Feinstein of Prussian. So this is to take, take place in Prussian. Father sat and studied Torah day and night. And that's also his image. Yeah. His father was constantly learning. A rather small group of outstanding young Torah scholars gathered around him and imbibed his words thirstily. So again, picture the scene. A small house, and we'll see how small it was in a minute. In Europe, the great sage of Moshe Salavichik, a beautiful face, by the way, if you've seen it. Big beard, sitting and learning all day, all night. Where Salvation is waking up, seeing his father sitting and learning. He's going to sleep to the words of his father learning. And what would happen was, I guess a few times a week, the students would come, and they'd sit around the table, and Rabbi Salvechik, or Moshe Salvechik, the Gram, would give shir. Father's lectures were given in my grandfather's living room, where my bed was placed. So he's sleeping in the, in the living room. Why do you think a little boy is sleeping in the living room? Because he doesn't have room. So they're, they're, they're very, very poor. They have a small home. And he said, what would he do? This is, again, a young boy. I would sit up in bed and listen to my father talk. My father always spoke about the Rambam. This is how he would proceed. He would open a vine with a tomba and read a passage. Then he would say, this is the interpretation of Rav Isaac and the other Tosvos. Now let's see how the Rambam interpreted that passage, right? For the briskers, the Rambam, as we said, it's always about the Rambam. How would the Rambam learn this Gemara? Father would always find that the Rambam had offered a different interpretation and had deviated from the simple way. Rambam often would do that. So my father would say, almost as a complaint against the Rambam, we don't understand our master's reasoning. Why would he explain it differently than the simple reading of the text? It is as if he was complaining to the Rambam directly, saying, Rabbeinu Moshe, why did you do this? Why are you making things so complicated? My father would then say that the criticism, the way the Rambam works, you open the Rambam, we say it's a 14 volumes, the Ravid or Avram ben David, he comments on the side, Rambam, this makes no sense. Rambam, you, you forgot the source. So that's how he comments. And obviously, we'll see in a minute, my father would basically say, like, Rambam, why would you do this? Seeming to say the criticisms and objections of Ravid are actually correct. Meaning, they're correct. And then what would happen? And that would, that's when chaos would ensue. The members of the group would jump up and each of them would suggest an idea. No, this is what the Rambam really meant. The Ravid is wrong. And what my father would do? He'd listen and rebut their ideas. And then repeat, our master's words are as hard, as, hard to crack as iron. But he would not despair. So after the students, the young students are trying to explain the Rambam must have meant this. He goes, no, don't you know? It can't be for this reason. It can't be for that reason. His father, he said, again, think of this man, he, he had a, I should have brought a picture in. He would rest his hand on his, his head on his fist and sink into a deep thought. 
The group was quiet and did not disturb his reflections. After a long time, a while, he would lift his head very slowly and begin. Rabbi Sai, let's see. And then he'd begin to talk. Sometimes he'd say a great deal, and other times only a little. I would strain my ears to listen to what he's saying. Little Rav Yashadov is sitting on the bed listening. Also amazing, he's following. I did not understand anything at all but the issue under, about the issue under discussion. But two impressions were formed in my young, innocent mind. Number one, the Rambam was surrounded by opponents, enemies who wanted to harm him. And number two, his only defender was my Abba, my father. If not for my father, who knew what would happen to the Rambam? I felt that the Rambam himself was present in the living room, listening to what my father was saying. The Rambam was sitting with me on my bed. What he looked like, I don't know exactly, but his countenance resembled my father's good and beautiful face. He had the same name as my father, Moshe. Father would speak, the students, were, their eyes fixed on him, would listen intently to what he was saying. Slowly, slowly, the tension ebbed. Father strode bravely and boldly. New arguments emerged. Halachic rules were formulated and defined with wondrous precision. A new light shone. The difficulties were resolved. The passage was explained. I wish we had time to go through just one explanation. You see just the beauty of this when, as it comes to, when it, as it's actually formulated. A new light shone. The difficulties were resolved. The passage was explained. The Rambam emerged the winner. Father's face shone with joy. He had defended his friend, Rabbeinu Moshe, the son of Maimon. A smile of satisfaction appeared on the Rambam's lips. I too participated in the joy. I was happy and excited and I would jump out of my bed and run to my mother's room to tell her the joyful news. Mama, Mama, the Rambam is right. He defeated the Ravid. Father came to his aid. How wonderful Father is. But occasionally, the Rambam's luck did not hold. His enemies attacked on all sides. The difficulties were as hard as iron. Father was unable to follow the logic of his position. He tried with all his might to defend him, but he was unsuccessful. Father would sink into music and his head leaning on his fist. The students and I, even the Rambam himself, would tensely wait for Father's answer. But Father would pick up his head and say sadly, the answer will wait. We'll have to wait for the prophet Elijah. What Rambam said is extremely difficult. There is no expert who can explain this. The issue remains in need of clarification. The whole group, my father included, were sad to the point of tears. A silent agony expressed itself on each face. Tears came from my eyes too. I would even see bright teardrops in the Rambam's eyes. Slowly I would go to mother and tell her with a broken heart, Mama, father can't resolve the Rambam. What should we do? Don't be sad, Mama would answer. Father will find a solution for the Rambam. And if he doesn't find one, then maybe when you grow up, you'll resolve his words. The main thing is to learn Torah with joy and excitement. I think what we see from there is A, the power of a mother and what the impact that probably had in him to say, your father can't do it, you'll do it one day. But also for the, for the, for the, Ram, for, for the Rabbi Salvechik, Talmud Torah, which was his main pursuit in life, was much more than a technical exchange of ideas. He was literally encountering the Mesorah, living with his best friend, the Rambam, and through that, experiencing ultimately the Shechin of the Divine Presence resting on him. So with that, I wish you a wonderful week. We have a wonderful Shavuos, and we'll pick up here next time.